Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Great, thank you. Thank you so much for that generous introduction, which I have seen written, so I did know what he said. Um, I am going to work through the sources here, so um, good that you have them in front of you. Um, what I kind of suggest we have until when? 8.30 tonight? Um, is that for the first part, as I'm sort of laying out the issues, if you have questions of clarification, like you're not sure either some, about something I said or about what's going on in a piece of the text you want to talk about, raise those, but save your, question, your argumentative questions uh, for the end. And maybe if you need to take a note or something to remind yourself, but I'm sure there will be many things to argue about. Okay, so eighth principle of faith. Maimonides famously had 13 principles of faith. The eighth is often talked about. And I've given you a carefully selected excerpt, which is basically what you mostly hear right at the beginning of the, of the handout. Later on, we'll see more of the context. So the eighth principle in the little excerpt at the top here says, the Torah has been revealed from heaven. That's the principle. This implies that the whole of this Torah found in our hands this day, that same thing you can pick up in the synagogue at any moment, is the Torah that was handed down by Moses and that it is all of divine origin. By this I mean that the whole of the Torah came to him, to Moses, from before God in a manner which is metaphorically called speaking, but the real nature of that communication is unknown to everybody except Moses. In handing down the Torah, Moses was like a scribe writing from dictation the whole of it. Okay, so some people, including prominent biblical scholars, call this the stenographic model of revelation. God talked. Moses wrote it all down, and he didn't make any mistakes. He got it exactly right. Moreover, that what he said has been passed down to us, so we know today that what we read in the Torah was actually said by God, word for word, to Moses, the perfect secretary. Okay, perfect stenographer. Um, people who describe this as describe this as the stenographic theory of revelation are often mocking it when they say that because they will often go on to add, as a biblical scholar I know who uses that phrase, often says, we know now that's not true. Uh, the Torah was written by various different sources, like known as J, E, P, D, and H now. Some people have H, some people don't have H. Maybe they were individual people, maybe they're groups of people. Long after Moses is supposed to have lived, we don't even know if there was a Moses, this is all nonsense, say, modern scholars, and if you're a progressive modern Jew, you say, yes, yes, yes. Maimonides says that Moses just wrote it down as God said it, but we know that's not true today, okay? Um, I will lay out a little bit more what I take, what this sort of standard 
let's call it fundamentalist model of revelation looks like as drawn from Maimonides, but then I want to raise questions about whether that's what Maimonides himself is really saying. And let's bear in mind here, Maimonides, who lived in the 12th century, so basically 900 years ago, is the most important philosopher in the Jewish tradition without question, the most important legal figure, single legal figure in the Jewish tradition. His code is the basis of all Jewish law since. If he, if he held the stenographic model that I just described, then it has a very powerful hold on our whole tradition, at least on what's called orthodoxy. If he didn't hold it, if his view was much more open to a progressive view of the Torah than is usually presented, and no surprise, that's what I'm going to argue, um, then that means very deeply in the tradition there's much more room for a progressive model of revelation than we generally think. So that's, that's sort of the stakes of figuring out what Maimonides had to say here. Okay, let's look at the second excerpt. Um, the eighth principle of faith is part of Maimonides' commentary on uh, Perakhelik, which we talked about today at, uh, at lunch, um, the long section of uh, Mishnah and Gemara, which begins by saying all... Israel has a part in the world to come, and then lays out who doesn't have a part in the world to come. Um, and that starts with people who don't believe in the world to come, and then people who um, deny aspects of the Torah, deny aspects of the basic principles. And so that gives Maimonides an excuse to say, well, what are the basic principles that we believe in? And so he lays out the 13 principles of faith in the context of his explanation of that section of the uh, Mishnah which is to say that that is still this eighth principle of faith, the whole 13 principles, would, they were written in Hebrew, they're directed to the, to the faithful, as it were, in the Jewish community, as opposed to his guide for the perplexed, his more strictly philosophical writings, which we will get to, which was written in Arabic, and which was directed to people who were mostly sort of philosophically inclined. It's not as much part of the legal tradition. Mishnah Torah is also very, well, that is the great code that he's the author of, so that is directed to the faithful again, as, we, as it were. And in the beginning of the Mishnah Torah, the first book, he has what he calls the laws of the foundations of the Torah, Hilchot Yisodeh Torah, in which he lays out basic principles uh, that we're supposed to believe. And in that context, he says, so just before the excerpt that I give you here, he's been talking about various prophets who you can believe if they basically say things that are not idolatrous, follow what Moses said you should say, and then they give some kind of sign, so then you'll be, believe the prophet. But basically, you believe in prophets only because Moses allowed us to believe in prophets. In the book of Deuteronomy, there is a discussion of future prophets. So then we get back to, why do we believe in Moses? And that's where this next excerpt comes from. The Jews did not believe in Moses, our teacher, because of the wonders that he performed. Remember, for most prophets... The reason to think they're a prophet, at least in part, is that they perform some wonder. Moses performs lots of wonders in the, book of, in the Torah, right? But that's not the reason that the Jews believe. Why? Whenever anyone's belief is based on wonders, the commitment of his heart has shortcomings because it's possible to perform a wonder through magic or sorcery. So, Moses turns the staff into a serpent, but so do Pharaoh's magicians. 
Moses has various plagues. Some of them the magicians keep up with. Some of them they don't keep up with. Even the ones they don't keep up with, you might say, well, they're not such good magicians, but this is still magic. You might not be sure that it comes from God. There's no reason, there's nothing that convinces you this has to come from, uh, from God. So it can't be because of wonders, says Maimonides, that we believed in Moses. So why do we believe in Moses? What is the source of our belief in Moses? The revelation at Mount Sinai. Our eyes saw, and not a stranger's, and our ears heard, and not another's, the th fire, thunder, and lightning. He, Moses, entered the thick clouds, the voice spoke to him, and we heard, Moses, Moses, go tell them the following. And now I have a, a line which I didn't translate very well, so I'm going to retranslate it from the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, it begins with uminayim at the bottom. And from where do we know that the standing at Sinai, the revelation at Sinai, alone, that's the proof of the prophecy of Moses that it was true and that we should have it without any doubts. Because it is said, and so Maimonides now quotes a verse, Lo, I come to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe in you forever. And the crucial thing for Maimonides is the forever. At the end it says, Forever. So he has a verse that says that the Jews believed in Moses without any doubts they would be convinced because God came to him in a thick cloud. That would lead them to have a, 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 a certainty, doubt-free commitment to what Moses said. Um, before this, they evidently did not believe him with a, with a faith that would last forever, but rather with a faith that allowed for suspicions and doubts. So what's the picture here? With other prophets, they show a wonder, they say things according to the rules of what it is to be a good prophet, and then you believe in them. If they don't follow the rules, you don't believe in them. Who set the rules? Moses. Why do we believe in Moses? Because in Moses' case, we ourselves saw God speak to him. We saw the cloud come, we heard the voice say, Moses, Moses, and then he spoke, so we can't have any doubt about that. All right, so the picture is... Like, if I said to you that I know that Maimonides said something, you say, well, how do you know that? I say, well, I got it from this source, I got it from this source, I got it from this source, and that person, way back when, he heard it from Maimonides himself. So how could he be wrong? And so here, you've got this Torah, somebody shows you the Pentateuch and Shul and says, this is God's word. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, it comes from this person and that person and that person, and all the way back, it comes from Moses, and we saw God speaking to Moses, who wrote it down exactly as he heard it. So that's the stenographic picture, and it strikes most progressive Jews today as kind of superstitious. Kind of, you know, okay, that's right, that's fundamentalist, that's what people used to believe, but progressive Jews pride themselves on knowing better. My question is, could that possibly be what Maimonides meant? And I'm going to raise a whole bunch of doubts about that, but let's start with the following. In this very passage we just looked at, it says, if you see somebody do something on the basis of a wonder, you think, ah, maybe that's from magic, right? Throws the staff on the ground, becomes a snake, you say, well, pretty impressive, but maybe it's magic. You hear some big cloud, and there's some fire and thunder and lightning, and a voice goes, Moses, Moses, 
that's not magic? Why should you not doubt that? Why shouldn't, why shouldn't you raise exactly the same question? Oh, it's a better show, it's more impressive, but is it really better than all the blood and gnats and all the ten plagues that we sing about on Satan? It's another show. It could also be magic or sorcery. This is a very, very smart philosopher here who thinks things through very carefully. This seems pretty obvious. How can he possibly say, well, you have some doubts if it's based on wonders, but if you've seen the voice come from the heavens, then you won't have doubts. Another doubt. Why do we believe in Moses? Because we didn't hear it from someone else. Our eyes saw not a stranger's. Our eyes heard not another. He's, he's very careful with words, Maimonides. He doesn't throw in extra stuff. And it's our eyes. It's the same in Hebrew. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't remember seeing any of this. Sorry. I don't remember hearing any of this. And Maimonides lived much closer to our time than he lived to Moses' time. He certainly <laughs> didn't see it himself. What's he talking about? He saw? Even if you could see God speaking, he saw something? He, he saw God speak to Moses? That's maybe a nice expression. The Jews then, they may have seen something, but I have to believe that they saw that. It's been passed down. I, do I believe without doubt right now that there was this amazing event with voice coming from a cloud? Well, my mind says, of course you did. You saw it. And I say, no, I didn't. Maybe somebody saw it possibly, but I have just heard about the event. He knows this. So what's he talking about? All right, that's meant to be an open-ended question, which I'll get back to. All right, let's now think a little bit about the 13 principles as a whole and the way the eight fits into it. So if you turn the page, I've laid them out. You can go into great detail. They're all very interesting. I'm not going to do that. That would take all night. I just want to give you a general framework. The general framework is if you look at the first five, they're all about the nature of God. God exists. There's only one God. God is not material. Very important point for Maimonides. God is incorporeal, spiritual, not, not made of matter. God has, uh, well, the philosophers like to say aseity, but that's a little bit too fancy. God has priority over everything else. Everything comes from God, and God doesn't come from anything else. And I guess the, third, the fifth of is, is not about God but about us, but it's supposed to follow from the others because of God's primordiality, because there's only one God and nobody else, no other being, no, nothing like God uh, has this kind of ultimate power, ultimate reality. Only God may be worshipped. So five about God, and then four about prophecy. First, prophecy is possible. Get the other prophets, uh, prophecies. Uh, you get the other prophets I mentioned. That's the sixth principle. The seventh, Moses' prophecy takes priority over all the others. The eighth, the Torah is from heaven, which is to say, we watched Moses get this, the part that we've just seen. And the ninth, there won't be another Torah. There's a polemic in the background there, one claim that's made by Islam, and uh, Maimonides spent his whole life in a Muslim context, is the Quran, that the Quran takes precedence over the Torah. That the Torah um, was imperfect, or at least we have distorted it over time, and uh, the Quran is the, and the Gospels is another re revelation, but also imperfect, and the Quran is the supreme revelation. 
Christians say something similar about the Gospels. And he says, no, there's no new revelation. There won't be another one. It's all the Torah. And then finally, you have four principles about God's relationship to us. Um, the first five are about a God who is a source of being, unified. So you're getting a kind of metaphysical principle, but there's no connection between that God and us except that we must worship God. There's no reason to think that that God, that God might be some ideal being that has isn't anything like a person doesn't care about human beings, maybe the source of everything, but doesn't actually have a relationship. And the fourth the set, the, 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 sorry, the four last principles, 10 to 13, are all affirming that God does have a relationship to us. First and foremost, God knows our deeds and cares about them, it, literally. It's simply a statement. This God is not completely abstract. This God does have a relationship to us. And then we'll reward and punish us. We'll bring the Messiah. We'll resurrect the dead. Okay, so my point here is that the four, the eighth principle appears in the context of the link between the abstract God of the first five principles and the God who cares about us in the last four, which suggests at least that Maimonides' overall point about the nature of the Torah and about the nature of prophecy does not have anything to do with Moses being somehow unique, or not necessarily even to do with um, our seeing God or our being, the, being able to prove the revelation. The point of the middle four principles is to link the abstract God to the God who cares about us. It's to say what the Torah gives you is a way of translating the ideal God of the philosophers, which is really the God of those first five principles, the God of Plato and Aristotle, who is just an abstract principle, translating that into a God who has a relationship to human beings, which in turn suggests that the power of the Torah, what makes it revelatory is that it makes the abstract God matter to us. Okay? It's meant to be suggestive to warm you up to the idea that what Maimonides is really doing is not telling you anything about the genealogy of the Torah. He's not telling you where it comes from historically. He's telling you about the function of the Torah, its religious significance. That's what really matters to him, I think. And I think that will become clearer when we look at the eighth principle in detail and look also at what he does with six through nine. So I'll just pick up a couple of quick points from six and seven, and then say a little bit more about eight, and then start moving towards both the reason why I think Maimonides can't possibly mean the stenographic theory that I mentioned in the beginning, and then what he, I think he does mean. So, sixth principle, under the possibility of pro prophecy, he's laying out how you can become a, a prophet. Uh, he says that in order to become a prophet, you have to have a very intellectual nature, the nature has to be developed basically, in fact, not really basically, literally. Maimonides thinks that all prophets are philosophers. Not all philosophers are prophets, but in order to become a prophet, you first have to be a philosopher, because otherwise you don't understand God well enough to be able to speak for God. Now, it's a little implausible, if you've ever taken a look in the Hebrew Bible, to think that Amos and 
Isaiah and Jeremiah were all philosophers. Uh, they certainly don't seem to be reading Plato in great depth or something like that, um, or making rational arguments, but okay, this is Maimonides' view. In order to be a, philosopher, a prophet, you first need to be a philosopher. But that's not all. Then this human intellect has, clings to the active intellect. The active intellect is the last in the chain of links of God to the world in the Neoplatonic theory of uh, what God is like. That God has these various emanations, and the lowest of them is the active intellect, and that's the one that actually connects to our world. The ultimate form of God is completely distant from our world, not connected. So the active intellect is a, an aspect of God, as it were, and it's as close as we can come to uniting with God. And so this prophet from philosophy first unites with the active intellect, and then when it unites with the active intellect, it learns something about human affairs, probably. So prophecy is a matter of a combination of philosophical thought with some kind of illumination from the beyond, as it were, that then pertains to human affairs. He doesn't stress that here, but he does say that in the guide. Okay, in the seventh principle, he says Moses is basically the best of these. He's the most philosophical. He comprehended more of God than any man in the past or future ever comprehended or will comprehend. And he reached a state of exaltedness beyond the sphere of humanity so that he attained to the angelic level and became included in the level of the angels. This is going to be very important for what I come back to. And he says elsewhere, Moses ceased to be human properly. Moses became an angel. It's very worth thinking about. Now, it's not exactly clear what an angel is, but it is presumably almost a bodiless intellect. It's pure intellect. So Moses came as close to that as anyone ever did. That's how he's supreme. And now with that in mind, we get to the eighth principle in which it turns out that the Torah that we have was given to this Moses of the supreme comprehension, this Moses of almost or maybe actual angelic status. Okay, And to repeat what we had before, the Torah, that the Torah has been revealed from heaven this implies our belief that the whole of the Torah found in our hands this day is the Torah that was handed down by Moses, that it is all of divine uh, origin. And then we have the bit that we've already read about communicating through something that's metaphorically called speaking, Moses being like a scribe. It is in this sense that he is termed lawgiver. And now note what most of the rest of this paragraph, and this is almost the complete principle, is devoted to. And there is no difference between verses like, and the sons of Ham were Cush and Mitzrayim, or, and his wife was Mehed Tabal, the daughter of Matred, and verses like, I am the Lord your God and hero Israel. Now you might think, I think many people who come to synagogue do think, that verses like, the sons of Ham were Cush and Mitzrayim, or the list of genealogy, this is where you can turn you know, your attention to something else, exactly, go to take a little nap, open the comic book. No, there's nothing less important than that about that than Shema Yisrael, which sounds crazy, but he wants to say every single verse is important. Um, they are all equally of divine origin, all belong to the Torah of God, which is perfect, pure, holy, and true. In the opinion of the rabbis, Menashe was the most renegade and the greatest of all infinites because he thought that in the Torah there were a kernel and a husk. Many Jews have thought that. 
that there's a core part of the Torah and the rest is kind of unimportant. He says, no, that's the worst kind of infidelity, heresy, and that these histories and anecdotes have no value and emanate from Moses. Look, what would be, what, 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 is the, what is heresy here? Thinking that some of the Torah comes from Moses. And you might have thought that the eighth principle is all about the whole Torah coming from Moses, right? That, that was what is, that's what the eighth principle is used to prove these days. It's not written by JEPD and all those guys. It's not written by later people. It's written by Moses. And he says, no, the worst thing is to think it's written by Moses. Well, let's look at what he says further down. This is the significance of the expression the Torah doesn't come from heaven, which, say the rabbis, is the remark of one who believes that all the Torahs of divine origin save a certain verse which, says he, was not spoken by God but by Moses himself. And of such a one, the verse says, for he has despised the word of the Lord. <coughs> for truly, in every letter of the Torah there reside wise maxims and admirable truths for him to whom God has given understanding. Man has but to follow in the footsteps of the anointed one of the God of Jacob who prayed, open my eyes, and I shall behold wonderful thing from your law. That is, you find a verse in the Torah, any verse, and you think it's useless and pointless, pray to find illumination in that verse. The text in which the eighth principle of faith is indicated is, hereby shall you know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of my own mind. This comes actually from the story of Korach, where Moses is trying to prove that he really is the servant of God. He's not making this up out of his own power play. Maimonides uses that to show that the Torah does not come from Moses, but from God. And that's what the eighth principle is really about. It's not that it comes from Moses. It's that Moses didn't put anything of his own into it. As we'll see in a bit, this is connected to the scribe. Well, it's very clearly connected to the scribe bit. It's also connected to the business about Moses being an angel, not really human. So far from trying to show here, at least, that, oh, yes, we know that the Torah comes from this historical moment when God spoke to Moses. Maimonides' whole point is it doesn't come from Moses. It comes from God. Exactly what that means we'll come to later on. So the principle of faith that he's laying out here is not faith in a historical meeting of God with Moses. It's an historical meeting of God with us. We are supposed to read the Torah and recognize that every verse in it has a divine meaning. Moses, even though it starts by talking about Moses, you can almost cut him out of the eighth principle. It's really about the relationship of God to us in the Torah. At least, that's what I'm going to suggest. Um, I'll skip the ninth. We talked about it a little before, that it's immutable. All right. If you turn to the fourth page now, we have some excerpts from the guide, Maimonides' philosophical work, where he lays out his views most explicitly um, and is less concerned about how well the community will receive them. Remember, from the beginning, he's told us God spoke all these words, Moses wrote them down, or at least in some metaphorical words, spoke them, spoke them, and Moses wrote them down. He also said, we watch God speak. That's why we, in the Mishnah Torah, he said, that's why we believe in it, because we heard God speak from the cloud and say, Moses, Moses, and then he wrote this down. All right, well, 
guide tells you that God doesn't speak. Okay? God doesn't employ any kind of speech. Some people believe that God commands an action in words, consisting like hours of letters and sound. All this is the work of the imagination, which is in fact identical with the evil inclination. If you actually thought God spoke, you were using your Yetzirah, even though he tells you that God spoke. Okay? More fundamentally, you might say, well, God doesn't speak, but he kind of mimes or he signals something, right? No. Um, not only that, not only does, he, does Maimonides not think that God uses some kind of mystical alternative communication, he doesn't think that anything like the historical event at Sinai is possible. And that comes out in the second uh, quotation here. God is mutable in no way whatever, not mutable in his relations to other things, for there is no relations whatever existing between him and any other thing. He is immutable in every respect. God, for the philosophical tradition that Maimonides comes out of, for most philosophers, is defined as a perfect being. That's what it is to be God. It's not like God chose to be perfect, happens to be perfect. He wouldn't be God if he weren't perfect. He has to be <coughs> the best possible being. But to be perfect, literally, perfect means complete. And in the Aristotelian tradition that Maimonides is coming out of, what complete means, change is a matter of fulfilling or realizing potentials. Everything starts from a potential state, and then it can become actual. So right now, my watch is potentially on the table. That potential was realized. Now it is actually on the floor. But um, um, more, that's not the kind of change that Aristotle is most interested in. More fundamentally, there were various materials, plastic, metal, et cetera, that had the potential to become this watch, and now they've become this watch. You can have a, 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 a painter and a canvas and paint. Potentially, there will be a painting. Actually, the, the change that makes the painting is moving from the potential painting to the actual painting. If God is perfect, he is fully actual. He has no potentials. If he just has potentials, that's not perfect. To be perfect, to be complete, is to be fully actualized. But that means God can do nothing other than God has done, is doing. God does, whatever God <laughs> does, he's already done. He doesn't change and do one thing one day and one thing another day. He doesn't change even in his relationships to you. You might think, well, God doesn't change, but I move around, and so my relationship to God changes. First I'm on his left, and then I'm on his right. But of course, that's a ridiculous picture of God. God's not in space. God doesn't change in any respect whatsoever, including his relationships to people. So he could not have gotten up one Friday morning and announced the Torah. Friday is traditionally when the Ten Commandments were given, the sixth day of the week, ha, she, she. That would mean Thursday he wasn't given the Ten Commandments, and Friday he was. And in fact, according to this story in Exodus, three days before, he tells Moses, I'm going to do this on day, get, three days from now, get ready. None of that. None of that happened, according to Maimonides, almost a thousand years ago. You don't need any modern philosophy, modern historical work in order to make this claim. But in that case, Maimonides can't possibly believe that God came down in the cloud and said, Moses, Moses, and that's why we believe 
that Moses wrote the Torah. That whole story in the beginning, he cannot possibly believe a word of it. At least, literally. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. Let me say a couple more words about prophecy, because I have it here, and then get to the solution to the problems I raised, at least a solution. Um, we see, again, from... The, he has... Maimonides' most extensive account of prophecy is in the guide. He has a series of chapters about it. Uh, you see, again, the business about the active... Uh, intellect, prophecy is in truth and reality an emanation set forth, sent forth by the divine being through the medium of the active intellect. I think you have to understand that the, the emanation is sent forth eternally. Again, God couldn't decide one day I'm now going to emanate. The emanation has to be going all the time. It's sort of out there and at times you may pick it up. I think someone said something like you have to see the active intellect as a kind of constantly going uh, radio transmitter and it points prophets pick up the signal, okay? Um, but the signal's always there. It's not, not suddenly on, on Friday. Um, in order to pick it up, he says, all the potential prophets' desires must aim at obtaining a knowledge of the hidden laws and causes in the universe. His thoughts must be engaged in lofty matters. There must be an absence of the lower desires and appetites of the seeking after pleasure and eating, drinking, and cohabitation, and in short, every pleasure connected with the sense of touch it is further necessary to suppress every thought or desire for unreal power and dominion. That is to say, for victory, increase of followers, acquisition of honor, and service from the people. So, in order to be a prophet, first of all, you have to do philosophy. Philosophy about God. Try to understand God. Secondly, you have to be absolutely committed to trying to understand God and not constantly distracted by sexual desire or hunger or something. And you have to, maybe let's make this third, not want to use anything you learn to gain power. <coughs> so the real mark of the prophet here is that he's just trying to figure out what God is like for its own sake or for the good, maybe, of the world or humanity, not because he thinks, oh, this is going to make me the leader of a sect. I, boy, am I going to be special when I have this revelation. So the key to Moses is that Moses is, as the Torah says, the most humble of men. That he doesn't want to be king. He doesn't become king. He doesn't want to be high priest. He isn't trying to get a lot of people admiring him to found a sect. At least that's how he's pictured in the Torah. So what we have in the Torah is a picture of what perfect prophecy would look like which is the search for the understanding of the divine being without any desire to use that to manipulate human beings, anyone else. Any desire to use that for evil purposes in any sense. Okay? And that's what's supposed to be now the greatness of Moses. Now, if you do all that, get to say which you could be a prophet, then in a sense, says Maimonides, you can come to the stage in which you perceive God. But if you're not using your senses, you're not perceiving God with your eyes or your ears. 
You're perceiving God with your mind. So I want to briefly, this brings me to the top of page five, talk about what mental perception looks like in Maimonides' main man, Aristotle, in his sort of guiding light. I've got a quote from De Anima here, which is on the soul. It's about the active power. The soul just means, it's, in Greek, it's psyche, psyche. Um, it's the mind. It's the animating power of creatures like us. Um, <clears throat> and here he does say, thinking is like perceiving. And he says, if thinking is like perceiving, it must be either a process in which the soul is acted upon by what is capable of being thought, or a process different from but analogous to that. The thinking part of the soul must therefore be capable of receiving the form of an object, which is to say that in thinking, you don't just make things up. You receive something from outside. Receive an idea from outside. That is to say, thought at its best is objective. It can be true. Uh, and in that sense, it's like perception. When I say I perceive something rather than I just imagine something, I mean something from outside came into me, struck my senses, struck my eyes or ears, or my hands or whatever, as opposed to when I just fantasize about something or have a hallucination, which I say, I guess I didn't perceive that. I just made it up. I was just dreaming. I was just hallucinating. If I perceive a pen on the table, I mean there's something outside that's coming to my senses. Aristotle suggests here that thinking can be like that too. Now let me just uh, very quickly try to sketch a little piece of what else Aristotle says about thinking, which may help clarify that. In the Nicomachean Ethics, in book six, where he talks about the main mental quality you need to be an ethical person, which is what Aristotle calls practical wisdom. He takes the opportunity to lay out the various kinds of knowledge, of, of thinking, basically, of, of seeking knowledge. And he gives you five kinds of knowledge. There's actually more, but there are five main kinds. Three of them are theoretical. And the contrast is meant to be made with practical wisdom, which is thinking about how to act. And then also techne, which is thinking about how to make things, um, where, which can mean making art. It can also mean making, making objects. right? And both of those are different from trying to just know something, to learn something. So let's take the three kinds of thinking that are relevant to knowledge. One is drawing inferences, reasoning. Uh, you do this in logic, you do this when you're making an argument in front of a jury, you do this when you're a historian or a journalist, you try to prove things, you give reasons for what you're saying, right? And of course, what, famously what happens is when you give one reason, somebody says, and why do you believe that? And then you give another reason, this can go on and on and on. That is what Aristotle at least roughly calls episteme, it's where we get epistemology, and it's what is translated pretty much as scientia or science. Infer inferring, but at the bottom or the ground of that process, says Aristotle, there have to be some things you don't give reasons for, because the process has got to start somewhere that you just see are right, that are, as we would say, self-evident. So one of those things might be the law of non-contradiction, that something can't be both true and not true at the same time. right? 
if things are true and not true, then you can't reason at all. So if the law of non-contradiction isn't true, then there can be no reasoning. But in that case, how do you prove the law of non-contradiction? If I give you a reason for the law of non-contradiction, you can say, yeah, but I believe in contradiction, so the opposite is also true. And then we're in, we're going to just talk a lot of nonsense. We can't have an argument. So if we grasp the law of non-contradiction, we have to just see that it's true. It's analogous to what mathematicians sometimes say when they see that an axiom is true, or they sometimes see that a proof is true. They just, I just see it. <coughs> and this is what Aristotle calls nous, N-O-U-S. And nous plus episteme, that is a good grasp of basic principles plus reasoning well, that's Sophia, which is wisdom. So those are the three cognitive virtues. There's nous, grasping first principles. There's episteme, reasoning well from them. And there's wisdom, which is doing both. But nous, then, is simply seeing basic truths that you can't prove. <coughs> and I suggest <coughs> that what the prophet ultimately does for Maimonides, who is an Aristotelian first and foremost, is see the truth is about God, mentally. They see truths that go beyond reasoning. They've reasoned a lot about God. They've worked out what God's nature is. And now they simply mentally perceive whatever the truth is about God or some truth about God's relation <laughs> to human beings. Remember, these are the, the intervening principles between what God is like and what we're like, right? So maybe what the prophet sees is the connection between God and us, that God cares for us, or something like that. All right, I, I don't even know exactly how to spell this out in detail, but just taking this model that of what prophecy is, it's mentally seeing God, and now go back to the first page. What is the source of our belief in Moses? The revelation at Mount Sinai. Our eyes saw, not a stranger's, and our ears heard, and not another's. A, as I said, no, ours didn't. Not Maimonides, not anybody in this room, not mine, unless you remember things I don't remember. No, I don't remember anything like that. B, you don't see God, you don't hear God. God can't be seen, can't be heard. What Maimonides must mean is that we mentally perceive that the Torah is true. We mentally perceive something, and that, you know, that doesn't mean that we perceive that every word is historically true. We mentally perceive that somehow this book that we have captures what it is for God to relate to human beings, relate to us. And now, that's something you can do right now. I mean, it's not going to be easy. <laughs> you have to spend a lot of time on it. But it, mean, it doesn't mean that 3,000 years ago, we stood at a mountain and saw a sound and light show. It means right now, right here, 2019, in Arizona, you can think about the Torah and figure out that, yes, you think, if you do, yeah, that captures pretty well, or as well as I can imagine, what God's relation to humanity looks like. And you'll have to figure out, on the basis of your own reasoning, how that works. But this is the way in which you can live out the eighth principle and see every single verse as being spoken by God. Not spoken by God 3,000 years ago to a bunch of people on a mountain, but being spoken by God right now to you. Now notice, at this point, 
Moses has almost disappeared from my entire account of what, my, what Maimonides is talking about. <coughs> but I sort of bring this to a close and we can go to Q&A by pointing out if Moses is essentially, for Maimonides, an angel, someone who has so gotten rid of his bodily desires, desires for power and so forth, that he is just like pure mind and his mind is just clinging to God's mind, then Moses has gotten rid of most of what makes him a distinctive human being. Most of what made him Moses, the guy from Egypt who was raised by Pharaoh's daughter and all that. Because all of those things, all the qualities that have to do with the historical person Moses, those have to do with his desires, his imagination, how much power he might want, what his relationship to his wife is like. But all that is submerged. The only part of Moses that matters for the Torah is the part of Moses that clings to God. And that, the part that is like an angel or is angelic, and that is the part of Moses that we could all participate in, that could exist at any time, that could have been part of J.E.P. and D. It's not a historical person who lived at a certain time. Everything specific about Moses, everything that made him the very specific person he was, by Maimonides' own account, he kind of got beyond all of that and became this pure intellect that could have existed at any time. But in that case, I don't know that Maimonides would have a problem with a modern historical account of how the Torah came about. That doesn't matter. The question that interests Maimonides is, is it true? Meaning, does it truly represent how God relates to human beings? <coughs> now, you may want to say no on that too, possibly. Depends partly how you interpret the Torah. <coughs> In the eighth principle, at the end, he urges you, as we've seen, to pray, open my eyes and I shall behold wonderful things from your law. In every letter of the law there reside wise maxims and admirable truths for him to whom God has given understanding. If you try to make your mind as much like Moses's as possible, maybe you'll find wise maxims and admirable truths in every line. You can try that out. You can struggle with that every time, every time all of us read the Torah. That's a task for us to take on. He tells you even to pray for help in that. But that's what it is to see the Torah as true. It has nothing to do with there being some magical event 3,000 years ago that we literally witnessed. That couldn't possibly what it has to do with, because if you thought you saw something now or in the past, that wouldn't be God for Maimonides. That would be an idol. That wouldn't be the ultimate source of all reality. Anything you thought you saw, you're supposed to get beyond seeing and sensing in order to connect to God. Anything you thought you saw, that would be an idolatrous God. So far from supporting what I described as this fundamentalist model of the truth of the Torah, I think Maimonides would regard it as idolatrous, as actually against what the Torah is supposed to be. And in fact, his idea of what it is to stand at Sinai is something we can still do ourselves today. We can stand at Sinai with Moses, Moses the angel, and try to figure out what this Torah is all about, what it has to teach us. I'm not saying that's easy, but it doesn't 
bind Judaism to this sort of exploded historicist model of what the source of the Torah is. For God to speak through the Torah, for it to be divine, has nothing to do with what happened at Sinai, literally. Okay, so um, I've said my piece. You may have some questions. Yes? I'm not a biblical scholar. So Neither am I. Um, I'm listening to you, and I'm comfortable with what you're saying. But the Torah itself anthropomorphizes, anthropomorphizes seismic God. Right. There are times when he turns his back on people. Right. He tells people, you can't see my face or you will die. There's twice in the Torah, once in Sinai and once in Deuteronomy, at the <coughs> when Moses speaks to him face to face. Right. So God walks around in the garden in the beginning, right. gets so angry. How is all of this reconciled? So one answer is, isn't it all? There's no way to do that. But the first answer, and actually I think this supports my reading of what Maimonides is about, is if you pick up the guide, almost the entire, about a third of it at least, tries to reinterpret, reinterpret every single anthropomorphic expression in the Torah. It's just unacceptable to Maimonides that any of this anthropomorphic stuff could be true. And so he gives you different ways of reading it. So when it says God gets angry, it just means God is just. It means that if people are punished by things, that means that it's just for them to be punished. Nothing to do with anger anymore. <clears throat> I don't remember what God's back is. There's definitely a section on throne. It's word by word. He really has, he, he has whole chapters on, this is how to understand this anthropomorphic word, and then this is the one to, but none of that language does he take literally which is one reason why I think the idea that we have to completely reinterpret the Torah, that's completely acceptable for him. Um, you might think at this point, why is he bothering with the Torah at all, uh, given that he so thoroughly reinterpreted it? Um, and to this there are a lot of different questions. There are some people who think that Maimonides was essentially a heretic himself. Um, and he's just working with his community. They happen to believe in this book, so he kept, re kept respecting it. I don't take that kind of a view of Maimonides. I don't think he would have devoted so much time to laying out a 12-volume code of Jewish law if he, um, if he was that dismissive. It was possible in his time to basically be a philosopher and pay very little attention to Jewish practice, and he didn't choose to do that. Um, so I think he thinks... It's important to take this book seriously, and it's also important to thoroughly reinterpret it. Um, I'm a little less upset than Maimonides is at all the anthropomorphic uh, language. I just think what he does is set us a model from way before modern scholarship of what it means to reinterpret your sacred book, to rework it, and it's pretty radical. Um, obviously, as you say, it's sort of shot through with anthropomorphic language, and he just bites the bullet and tries to rework everything. Yeah? Uh, one of the principles of Maimonides is that, uh, well, it says in Deuteronomy that the power cannot be amended right. uh, in any That's way. Right. Yeah. Yet, you just mentioned about <coughs> reworking the Torah. You have books like the Mishnah and the Talmud, which came after the structure of the Second Temple. Doesn't, you know, those books uh, amend the Torah in some way? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. <laughs> um, 
And it's a question that not only Maimonides, but lots and lots of other Jewish thinkers throughout the ages have had to struggle with. Uh, I skipped over it, so, but let's go back at principle nine, uh, what, uh, my excerpt on pages three, the third to fourth page, which he says under the immutability of the Torah, this implies that this law of Moses shall not be abrogated and that no other law will come from before God. Nothing is to be added to it nor taken away from it, neither in the written nor oral law, as it is said, you shall not add to it nor diminish from it. So he quotes from Deuteronomy itself, which actually says not just once, but repeatedly, as you said, don't add, don't take away. And yet the rabbis have done that from the beginning. And didn't uh, Maimonides himself write a commentary on the Talmud with the Ramban? Didn't he himself write a commentary? He doesn't have a full-scale commentary on the Talmud the way Rashi does or something like that. He has this commentary on the Mishnah. He comments on various aspects of the Talmud. His own code can be understood as a kind of commentary on the Talmud in that he basically goes through the entire thing and distills it down to what he thinks what amounts to the takeaway. Um, look, this, this is, I don't think there should be any easy answer to that question. But basically, he clearly thinks, as has the tradition before and after him, that reinterpretation is not the same as changing. Um, the best, and, and sometimes you might say, look, you really are changing things when you reinterpret things so fully. Um, you know, the rabbis, when they come to the law about stoning the stubborn and rebellious son, basically make it impossible to do that. Um, the Torah, you know, what is the heart of the Torah? What, what is all of Leviticus about? And most of numbers, sacrifice. It's a huge sacrificial system. Since the fall of the temple, we can't sacrifice anymore, yet we survive. And in fact, the whole Mishnah and Gemara comes, as you said, afterwards. So we had to reinterpret the tradition quite thoroughly in order to continue to find some kind of practice, actually. Um, and the Pharisaic tradition that we are all heirs to sees, for instance, um, the meal at the table on the model of the sacrifice. So you wash your hands before bread, and you say a blessing, and you see the table is kind of like an altar. You're supposed to say words of Torah around it, and then there's also the idea that prayer substitutes for sacrifice. Um, all of this is such radical reinterpretation that you might think you're basically adding or taking away. I don't want to completely speak for Maimonides, but I think you could say that as long as you respect the Torah as the divine word and are trying your best to interpret it in the light of its own terms and your historical situation, you are not, you're not crossing anything out. And you're not adding new rules. But it's not like the Gospels of the Quran, Gospels most clearly, the Torah, you know, this law is abrogated and now you have to have faith in Christ and so forth, although at one point Jesus says otherwise. That, that's out as far as Maimonides is concerned. You can't stay Jewish that way. But if you say, well, I'm doing my best to make sense of how the Torah brings the abstract God, of the, who's the source of the whole universe, into the lives of human beings, but I have to re-understand it because I don't understand it or because it doesn't seem applicable to the present day or because I don't, can't make sense of it in moral terms, well, then you're still working within it. So yes, you have to put these two things together. 
but I, the basic takeaway is reinterpretation is not changing. That's the idea, convincing or not. Yeah? There are two things. It seems to me um, re reinterpretation is happening all the time, right here and everywhere, and that's what we're going to do. Yep. Um, but still, we cling to and cleave to a reading of the Torah, as is nothing extra. We chant from Torah. You're not going to add anything to it. There's little interpretation. But your goal is to have it live through the recitation, to share it. There's, there's nothing in that part of the service that is going to change the Torah. No matter what we do before we get to the reading or after the reading, we still say, we're going to read this book. Well, that's right. Um, and in fact, I think the, the chanting of the Torah is a place in which Jews of all denominations, really, preserve this idea that the Torah must be preserved intact more than anywhere else. Now, it's not entirely true. As, as you know, I think you alluded to it just now. You may be a Torah reader. There are certain words that we pronounce differently from the way they're written and so forth. But you don't write anything on the side. There are no... Notes on the sides of the Torah were very strict about um, um, the person who chants the Torah doesn't add little things in. Um, right. Sorry? Right. right. And, and, and then we have people checking to make sure they get it right and so forth. Still, but here, one, uh, Maimonides' point is that you have to live it. And... It's not just chanting it. It's a matter of how does it translate into what you do. And there, I think the point that was made earlier that it seems like we do change it, it certainly seems like that. Um, and by now, of course, there are Jews who do just sort of X out many parts of the Torah and not just the sacrifices. Maimonides is opposed to that. Um, and you have to square the fact that he's opposed to change in the Torah with the fact that he does allow for interpretation. Outside of that moment in which we read Torah and services, we certainly constantly are reinterpreting what the law is. And the watchword there still has to be, I think, reinterpretation is not the same as abolition. Um, so essentially saying, OK, you have to be the philosopher to um, pursue this, you know, it's not the historian, it's not the artist. Right. You know, and that's why, well, okay, great, because he's a philosopher. That would make philosophers very happy. You're, you know, you're ordained to do it. But I think, really, what it, it's, 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 it's giving some guidance, you know, for each of us to become the best philosopher that you can. Right. I think and that's right. have your meal. Have had your drink. I've had everything else, and give it over time to study. I think that's essentially, um, the message for us. Yeah. I, I wouldn't want to think that there's anything here that they're saying um, that everyone has the ability to, to study, to strive, to elevate, to emulate, to be like Moses. I mean, that's, that's what we're here for. That's what... That's why we study the Torah. I certainly want to go in that direction myself. 
I think it would be historically dishonest to pretend, to forget that Maimonides was an elitist. He was an elitist. Um, he has a well, quite beautiful but somewhat grating passage to modern ears at the end of the guide in which he talks about his this metaphor of a palace, God's in the middle of the palace. Some people are not even in the palace and they're looking away. They have no idea what's going on. Some are in the outer you know, gardens, as it were, and then some are in some, somewhat more inner courtyards. And then some people are really in right at the throne. And guess who's there? <laughs> um, and you know, in some ways, the, the, the image is not meant to be simply rejecting of the hoi polloi, of the everyday Jew, everyday person. The everyday person, to the extent that they're faithful and committed, and they listen to the words of the leaders of the community and follow the law in that way, they also participate in God's presence, just maybe not as intensely. And I don't think Maimonides thought it was possible for everyone to be a philosopher. I just don't think that that aspect of his teaching is something essential that we have to hang on to. Um, you know, we can reinterpret it Maimonides as well. And I would agree with you uh, that it seems to me that this is what every Jew should see as their ideal. Now, what you can't get away from, given Maimonides' way of looking at things, is that it is important not just to read the Torah, but to understand God in a philosophical sense, which is to say, above all, not to think God is just like some guy in the sky who, for instance, could be arbitrary, like some people and not other people. The idea of a God who just, oh, you know, the Jews, I, I'm really fond of them. I can't stand everybody else. Let them do what they want. That would be immoral as well as incomprehensible metaphysically. And thinking philosophically about the nature of God can get you away from beliefs that are both silly and dangerous. So in that sense, yeah, we all need to do some philosophy, which you were suggesting. Um, but maybe we all can. Yeah? I find it really hard to wrap my head around the idea that a person coming from uh, a um, traditional point of view doesn't says that God doesn't act in history. But that seems to be the fundamental aspect of the Jewish story is God acting in history. We're in Parshat Bow. We've got God acting in history. Right. You're not the first to be kind of irritated by this aspect <laughs> of my monitors. Um So again, really interesting question. Let me... Oh, I was told I should repeat the questions. I haven't been doing that. Uh, <laughs> so what's your name? Barbara. So Barbara's question was about uh, how it's possible that someone from a traditional background, someone so steeped in the tradition as Maimonides, could not see God as acting in history. That seems central to Judaism, that God is acting in history. Is that fair enough, basically? OK. Um, look, a couple things. First of all, we do have to. I, 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 I find Maimonides inspiring to this day, at least in many ways. I, I find this non-historical model of what it is to take the Torah as God's word really powerful, as you probably could tell. Um, and I do think it's still useful to us. But there are other aspects of Maimonides' view that, I mean, the elitism, among other things, don't necessarily sit well with the way we look at things today and don't necessarily didn't necessarily sit well with other parts of the tradition. 
to get into Maimonides' mindset, as it were, you do have to recognize that in his time, and actually for much of the time beforehand, purely abstract thought was the highest kind of thought. Historical thought was not valued so well, so highly. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of history, um, real history. And what, what's history, after all? It's a sort of sequence of one people conquering another, and slavery and destruction and oppression. If you can focus your mind on the ultimate good structure of the universe, it seems much more beautiful. Uh, and in fact, certainly Plato thought, you yourself will become more beautiful, more stable. The Stoics also thought that if you can focus on what's stable in the universe, you yourself will become a more stable person. So focusing on history was a bad thing in that sense. Now, that said, Maimonides is not unaware, of course, of how important history is to Judaism. He just thinks it's important as an understanding of our community's relationship to God. So I, wondered, I, I didn't put this, and I didn't play out the account of prophecy fully. For Maimonides, the f prophet is a philosopher who says things that are valuable to the community. So it's a philosopher who has thought about God and is able to translate that into terms that are useful for the community's law. And what is law for Maimonides? Ideal law, divine law, does three things. It structures communities. It keeps them together, prevents them from violence, allows for justice. It improves moral character. And it makes you, brings you closer to God. And Maimonides doesn't think that any legal system except the Torah, certainly any legal system other than a religious one, will do that third function. Others may do some of the other functions, keep societies together, maybe even make you a better person. But bringing you closer to God, helping getting rid of idolatrous pictures of God, that's the Torah's central function. That said, how did we get to the stage in which we can use the Torah to bring us closer to God? Well. We started as a people that had this sort of checkered history under Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then we went into slavery, and then we had to come out from that under Pharaoh, in Parshat Bo, and Vayera, Vashalach. Um, and then we had various rebellions, and we had uh, our own kings and struggles with it. All that history is important, but what's important about it is that it shows the many temptations and difficulties the Jewish people has had in sticking to, coming to, sticking to, and uh, developing its monotheistic commitments. So the history is there, but not really as so much as God doing something in history as shaping how we relate to God. That said, you might still say, we look at the Torah, it looks like God is involved in history throughout. That seems to be the big Jewish idea. And there were other Jews of the time and later who felt that Maimonides had played down that aspect of God too much. Um, in his time, it was a very exalted conception of God to have God as beyond history. Um, I think we probably need, want and need today, a God who is more connected to history. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't do roughly what Maimonides is saying. That is, understand the Torah as teaching us something about how to relate to God. 
maybe a more historical God than Maimonides has. But still, it's not a book that teaches us about what some ancient people did 3,000 years ago. It's a book that teaches us about what we should do today. And that's what I think is really powerful about this. Yeah, you had a hand up. I, I was continuing on with uh, her idea. Yeah. Um, we, we talk about there's the historicity of, of the Jewish people's relationship and perception of God, but the Torah itself says that God says, oh, I think I made a mistake. And here's my rainbow. Right. The Torah itself says that. It also says that God walked around in the garden. It also says that he, you saw my back and that we saw, he spoke to Moses face to face. All of that for Maimonides has to be reinterpreted. God can't possibly change his mind. That's just got to be not a mistake, because nothing's a mistake. No worth it. human perception of what God is. I don't actually remember the chapter. I think there is a chapter in the guide in which Maimonides talks about language of God repenting, but he thinks that has to be re-understood so that it's not... So something like what you just said. Um, when it says God changed his mind, it means that we came to see God in a different light. Something like that. Um, but those are all cues for us to get out our reinterpretation pencils and start rethinking it for him. You can't take any of that literally. So he understands it metaphorically? Yeah. Yeah. That separates him from a lot of people. Oh, yeah. Um, less so in the medieval times than now. I mean, one of the things I find exciting about all this stuff is Maimonides is a much more free thinker, as it were then many people one identifies as orthodox later on and maybe in our own day. He's not stuffy. He's really willing to do some pretty ingenious and radical and daring work with the Torah in order to make sense of it. And, that, and this is the central figure in our tradition, which I think is a suggestion that even within the, the, the framework of very sort of traditional Jews, there's much more playroom than we often see. a little trouble wrapping myself around the prophets being philosophers and active intellects. And the whole idea is that they become, what makes them a prophet is their philosophy and their intellect. The active intellect is an aspect of God. So they unite with the active intellect. They don't become, okay. And that's where I'm going with this. So yeah. By virtue of being a prophet, they've made that connection. And yet, my understanding is that <coughs> If that were true, every prophet would have the same message. But that's not the case. So remember that for Maimonides, the job of a prophet is to take their understanding of God and use it to guide the community. In the case of Moses, the ultimate prophet, that means that he takes his understanding of God and somehow, as a result, produces the Torah, which is then the foundational document for the entire rest of the Jewish experience. In the case of Jeremiah or Isaiah, maybe there's a more specific message. Let's take what today we'd call First Isaiah, who is railing against the idolatry and the inhumanity and, and um, well, classism, you know, uncaring attitudes to, to, towards the poor that he sees. So on a Maimonidean understanding of that, Isaiah is first and foremost an, un, 
a philosopher who has thought about the nature of God to such an extent that he's united with the active intellect. And then he says, what do I, he realizes, as someone who cares a lot about God, this ultimate principle, I have an obligation to help my community be better in some way. Well, what's the task before me today? Well, there might be different tasks for different prophets at different times. My task, if I'm Isaiah, is to end this idolatrous tendency and to end the way people behave towards the poor. And in that sense, yes, he has the same message maybe as Amos and Hosea, but Ezekiel will have a somewhat different message. And Jeremiah, who is living during the destruction of the temple, he, <coughs> or just before, he, he is mourning for his people and mourning for the destruction they're going to face. So they're not going to have the same message, but not because they have different understandings of God. They better have the same understanding, but because they have different historical circumstances, so what they have to do for the community will be different. I'm just curious. The Torah was not written in the same chronological order that we read the Torah every Saturday. Why is that? Um, what are you thinking of within the Torah? Well, some books, I understand, were written, uh, I don't know, it's by Yikra or, or Devar, uh, some books were written uh, ahead of the place in the Torah. Instead of last, they were like third Okay, so the question is, why are the books of the Torah not written in the order in which we read them? And I'm presuming that you have the idea that they were not written in that order from historical sources, which Maimonides would not have been aware of. I say... I've been stressing throughout this talk that Maimonides' idea of the divinity of the Torah has nothing to do with any literal historical moment in which God literally spoke to Moses. That doesn't mean he doesn't think there was some moment at Sinai. It doesn't mean that he believed in J, E, P, and D or the rest of the historical story we tell today about how the Torah was produced. There's no reason he would believe that. Nobody historically had suggested that at the time. So I don't think Maimonides thought that the books of the Torah were written in a different order from the order in which we uh, read them today. I I don't know enough about the historical account of the writing of the Torah to say anything directly about in response to your question. I would say that my point is that we might want to try, even as progressive Jews, to pull ourselves away from the emphasis on history that we have in our community. I don't mean it's uninteresting. I think the history of the Torah's production is, is quite interesting. It tells you a lot about the ancient Israel. But is it religiously valuable? I'm not sure that it is. I think what Maimonides provides is a different model for thinking about the Torah as it's relevant to how we live right now in the form in which we read it. And the form in which we read it begins with Genesis and moves forward through Exodus and Vayikra, gets to Deuteronomy at the end. There is a traditional rabbinic view that there's no forward or later, beginning in uh, no chronological order to the Torah. Not everybody agrees with that. I don't actually particularly like it myself, but it's Rashi's view. So that's certainly one way of approaching it. 
Maimonides is urging us to find ways of making sense, making divine sense of every verse. If it helps to make sense of that, to see it as not written in chronological order, fine. If it helps not to see it that way, to see it as all coming in some kind of at least intelligible narrative order, then one should see it that way. I'm more inclined to think that the order in which we read it does make some sense, overall sense. Whether that's historically how it was produced, you know, what I often think about with the emphasis that we have in, in, in the Jewish world today on the historical production of the Torah is, what would it be like if in English departments all you ever heard was when, about when Shakespeare wrote which edition of his plays and what the manuscripts look like, people would stop reading Shakespeare. It would become very boring. And if it turned out that he cribbed a lot from some other writer, then what? That, then, then you don't want to see Macbeth anymore or King Lear? Uh, the value of King Lear lies in what we make of it, the meaning we pull out of it. And I do think we need to, to return to that in our understanding of the Torah. And in that sense, I, I have to say this talk is a little bit anti-historical. Not, not saying that it's wrong, it's just that I don't think it's as interesting religiously as trying to make sense of it internally. In the very beginning, which I missed, but um, can you just share a little bit about what Maimonides, um, who's he speaking to? You know, who's he responding to? What, what is he pushing up against? Good, yeah. Well, I'm happy to talk about that much history. <laughs> Um, oh, yes, the question is, what is the historical context of Maimonides himself? Who is he arguing with? Who is he responding to? Why is he writing this, basically? So Maimonides lives during an age in which an interest in philosophy was really taking root in large parts of the Jewish community, at least around him. And the effect of so on the one hand, Maimonides shared that interest. He wanted more Jews to be involved in basically Islamic philosophy. A great, it's a high point of Islam. He lives at the high point of Islamic thought. Um, and he's reading people like Al-Farabi, um, Muslim thinkers who preceded him. Um, and he really thinks that their use of Aristotle and more Plato than he may even have known, to understand the nature of God and relationship with God and humanity, that that's really fascinating and that's sort of where the action is. But one effect of that interest in philosophy is that there were people in his community, particularly Jews who had read philosophy, who were increasingly alienated from the Torah, whose feeling was basically... This is all too anthropomorphic. Um, this doesn't look like the ideal God that we're supposed to get from all these great philosophers. So he winds up with at least two purposes that are somewhat different, but they connect. On the one hand, he wants to get the community a little bit away from the, focusing that much on law and on Talmud and getting them to think more about philosophical issues. And that's one reason for writing the Mishnah Torah, the Compendium of Jewish Law. Now you can look it up, it's in the book, you can figure out what to do, and go on to do philosophy. You're spending, spending all your time figuring out what the law ought to be. 
On the other hand, and this is particularly important for the guide, he wants to show Jews who are questioning the importance of being Jewish at all, of remaining committed to the Torah, how you can put the two together. That's what a lot of the reinterpretation is about, and the, the key to figuring out how to deal with the anthropomorphism. He wants to say, look, you can be a committed, full, observant Jew and be a committed, full philosopher at the same time. In fact, the two things work together. So those are his polemics. And in some ways, obviously, uh, maybe this isn't obvious, but I, I think there are very powerful affinities to the situation we wind up in today for various reasons, some of them, at least in the general sense, philosophical, and some of them having to do more with social trends. A lot of the Jewish community today feels very alienated from the Torah, thinks it's very different from what they take to be most important morally or philosophically or spiritually. We haven't had a new Maimonides come and really show how to put them together. And it's very rare to have someone with such an encyclopedic knowledge of the Talmud as he had. Just incredible knowledge of every debate. And he's really, his way, the Mishnah Torah is a wonderful, beautiful work in which you bring, when you look at the sources that he's drawing on and see how he puts it together, the framework he has for laws that are scattered all over the place, it's just really terrifically done. Um, and at the same time, he's at the top of his game in philosophy. Very, very few figures combine both of those things. And so he was a valuable figure in kind of holding the community together in the face of a certain kind of outside challenge. Um, we face, you know, it's different outside philosophies and there are different outside challenges today, but that's one sense in which he's kind of useful for us in thinking through our own challenges. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>